Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Blackwood Show. The Black, the Black, the Black, Black. Welcome to the Blackwood Show. I'm Taylor Blackwood, and today we are doing a Talking Toys. This is a fun one. I'm really excited about this because today we're going to talk about mechanical watches, and specifically, we're going to talk about one of my favorite brands is Patek Philippe, or Patek Philippe, if you prefer. <laughs> uh, but I'm really excited that during COVID, uh, they had canceled the initial announcement of all their new watches for 2020. They're going to reveal all those, I believe, at Basel World, if I remember right. And they canceled that, of course, because you can't do crowds and all these things. And like a lot of watchmakers, they decided not to put out that round initially. But they did uh, a surprise drop of their new 2020 models, including uh, a line in their Grand Complications, which is, as the name suggests, their highest end of, uh, of their watches. And one that I'm really excited about. Specifically today, we're going to be talking about reference number, which is like a model number. Uh, 5303R. It's a rose gold minute repeater tourbillon mechanical watch. It's a big dog one. This is one of those aspiration watches. Like you created a tech company that went public. You know, one of those only a few people on planet earth will own this watch ever. And it's very, very significant. I love it for a lot of reasons that we're going to get into, but first let's start by talking about one of my favorite topics. That's mechanical watches. Uh, I love mechanical watches. I'm a collector myself. I love Paddocks. Uh, that's probably my favorite brand. Love Rolex as well. And then I also own a Jaeger uh, Couture, which is uh, a really cool watch brand as well. But uh, Paddocks definitely my favorite. And they're by and large considered the Rolls Royce of watches, right? They're the ultra wealthy person's watch. They're um, very classy, very classic. The brand's been around forever. It's a really, really cool thing. It's Found in 1839 uh, in Geneva, you know, in Switzerland. So most of the great watch brands are out of Switzerland. Although there is a, a German watchmaker that's really on on the rise. I always mispronounce the name, but I think it's A. Long and Son. And they're doing some really cool stuff. But historically, the best mechanical watches on planet Earth were always made in Switzerland and oftentimes in Geneva. Um, mechanical watches are really cool. For those of you who don't know, it's, it is... Uh, one of those bygone old collector hobbies that I think is still very cool and it's kind of become more of like a luxury item. But, you know, back in the day, you want to know what time it was. You needed a watch or a clock. Uh, so it started out in the 15th century, I believe, with spring-loaded clocks, I want to say. And then in the 17th century or so, they began to figure out how to do wristwatches so that people could wear these mechanisms on their hand and walk around all day knowing what time it is, right? So you can get down to your local... Uh, your local blacksmith and check in on your sword or whatever on time. <laughs> but anyway, so, so you got a picture back in the day. You didn't know what time it was walking around. You know what part of the day you're in. You didn't know how to make your meetings and things. So having a wristwatch all of a sudden was probably an insane invention akin to like the iPhone or something like this, the cell phone, right? Back in the day, that's just crazy to be able to know what time it is, no matter what, no matter where you are. Really, really cool. Really, really compelling. So the mechanical watch was transformative, being able to keep the world on time. The way it works is it's tiny little gears that watch makers fit together expertly. Um, it's oftentimes families would create different aspects of watches coming together to make what's called a movement. So you gotta think in, in order for uh, a watch to be accurate with these tiny little gears that all fits in a beautiful case on your wrist is a huge accomplishment of engineering, especially back in the day when you know th there is none of the technology that we have today for manufacturing tolerances and for, for 
um, I don't know, even like design features, right? Like getting into CAD cam to design some of the day. They didn't have anything like that. They were hand drawing these things and making all these parts on rudimentary machines. And that's an art, you know, that, that took a lot of work. That took a lot of craftsmanship and it became a storied profession for families that they passed down, uh, throughout Switzerland. And oftentimes one family would make one component and then the best watchmakers would compile those things into a movement. And what I mean by that is that uh, internal watch has many different key functions and movements and things like this and, and key gears uh, that make the whole thing function. And you would gain expertise in creating one of those kind of like on a, an assembly line today, you know, one or more of those parts and, and sell them to a manufacturer who combines them all into their uh, their specifications oftentimes if they have a specific design in mind or whatever, but there was a huge art to this and it's a really neat thing. It made the world run on time. That's a big deal. Right. And, uh, got handed down for centuries and centuries until the 1970s. I want to say is when the quartz watch was created. And of course quartz watch is what we know today. It's like your Apple watch, whatever. Well, I say it's like the Apple watch, but the quartz watch is, is digital watches is, is what they came along. And I believe is I want to say it's the Japanese who created quartz watches initially, and they just took the market by storm. Because now all of a sudden, for a, an incredibly cheap price, for a fraction of making a mechanical watch, you could have a more accurate watch on your wrist, and, and it could be that way infinitely so. And that really uh, shook the mechanical watch industry. And although it became like a nostalgia thing, and many people still wanted mechanical watches because of their beauty and their complexity, and just having one of these fine wrist watches is like having a, an old school mechanical machine on your wrist that all these people put all these loving hours and, and a lifetime of craftsmanship and know-how into. Some people still wanted them, but, but oftentimes in the course just made sense, you know, that for a fraction of the price, I mean, a course watch can be $5 or whatever today, right? Versus a Rolex can be, I mean, a Rolex can be, if you got gold and all these complications and things like this into the 40,000 range, $70,000, if you put diamonds around the bezels, even more aftermarket coated, like you see uh, oftentimes flashed in you know, rap videos or whatever. So uh, uh, watches can be very, very expensive, whereas a quartz watch could be $5, a fraction of the cost. So watchmaking became much less popular and had a really dark time for a period. Some of the big watch manufacturers went over to making uh, quartz watches and things like this just so they could be competitive in the market. But some of the old star stalwarts held out like Rolex. Uh, Patrick Philippe did actually make a couple of quartz watches, one of which my grandfather bought and is in the family still. Very cool, very collectible now because they don't make many quartz watches, but they by and large stuck to the time owned craft of making mechanical watches. That's a brief overview. It's a really cool thing. It's almost a lost art. I would say it's art. That's the best way to describe it. You know, it's, it's hard to assign value to these things because it doesn't do anything that your Apple Watch does. Your Apple Watch, from a functional standpoint, is an infinitely better choice if you're a robot and you just want to be able to answer text messages and know the weather and XYZ. Mechanical watches can't do those things. But mechanical watches can uh, be a really cool collectible piece, something that you really appreciate. And it's the same reason you might buy a fine car versus a cheaper one. Like both of them are going to get you to the same place. One's much more economical, maybe even more reliable, but there, there's a cool factor to that, you know, Porsche or that Ferrari or something that has a lot of cross craftsmanship in it that a lot of people aspire to. Not the least of which is that as a status symbol. I mean, even, especially now with Instagram, everyone's flexing Rolexes and the yellow gold presidents with diamonds around the bezel or whatever. So there's some really cool watches out there and some really cool things to pick from, but Paddock, I love, um, many people don't know about Paddock. It is getting more, uh, pop culture notoriety as you're starting to see a lot of people mention it from like the Kardashians to rappers to, uh, the old people used to have them like tech Titans and things like this. So you still see a whole lot of, uh, uh, Paddock's and it's becoming more referenced in pop culture, but still kind of a, 
uh, watch lovers watch. And that's something I really appreciate about it, that you can wear a paddock, which oftentimes is way more expensive, exponentially more expensive than even like Rolexes and things like this. I mean, there are paddocks that are over a million dollars, uh, brand new and aftermarket, they really hold their value well. And some of them even appreciate, you can sell them for more than you bought them for initially. But, uh, what I love about it is that it's kind of a, a watch that you can wear that other watch lovers will appreciate and notice that you have. Uh, but it's not in everyone's face. A gold Rolex is in everyone's face. Look, I, I slapped a bunch of gold on my wrist uh, and it has diamonds or Audemars frosted out with diamonds. You know, Audemars Piguet is another great brand, but you frost it out with diamonds or something. You're trying to show everyone how much money you spent on your watch. A Patek Philippe is a gentleman's watch oftentimes, gentle or gentlewoman. They make beautiful women's watch as well. Um, but oftentimes they have leather straps. Oftentimes the workmanship's impeccable on the dial and they have really cool uh, features, everything from cloisonne and enameling work to uh, guilloche it's called where they do special designs carved into the, the face of the watch, but it's not in someone's face as much It's beautiful. And someone might notice it without even knowing what it is or how much you spent. So it can be underappreciated. You can kind of fly under the radar while still having the really cool, the really cool, uh, example of this timepiece. So Paddock's one of my favorites. Uh, they have so many cool designs. It begins with their Calatrava line is their most basic. And it's kind of a classic looking watch on a leather band. Oftentimes just, uh, uh, you know, numeral like hour markers struck on it. And sometimes it doesn't even have a complication. It just tells time or just tells time and the date. Um, and then it moves all the way up to these crazy ones. What they do is they, they have uh, their basic lines like uh, Nautilus is their sports watch. Calatrava is their basic dress watch. And then you get into complications. And what's cool about complications is that's where the watch starts to have more functions than just telling time or just telling the date. A lot of people are familiar with those are complications, but, uh, the watch becomes more complicated with each additional function that it can do. So getting back to mechanical watches in like the 1700s, uh, lots of people want to know what the date was. So that was an extra set of complication to get into the watch and to make it not only track 12 hours accurately, but to know when it's tracked 12 hours successfully twice and to flop the date, right? And it would have a marker that's one, two, three, four, five, blah, 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 up to 31. Uh, and then on any month that had 30 days or like 28 in February and things like this, you had to, you had to change the watch over, right? You had to advance that one function of it, but all those things had to happen with tiny little gears inside of your wrist. And they had to design all this back in the day without the help of computers and come up with these movements that could accommodate these complications to do more function. Um, so the complications got out of hand from there. You know, the watchmakers mastered the art of telling the time accurately, mastered the art of telling the date accurately, and then began, began to extend past that. Right. So some of them started to do days of the week in addition to that. So it said Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and a little dial. Uh, some of them started to do uh, what are called annual and perpetual calendars. So that has to do with accounting for either the fact that some months have 30 and 31 days and perpetual calendars can even account for leap years, which is insane. So I don't know it off the top of my head. Let me Google real quick. If we look up how often to set a perpetual calendar, this will be interesting to you guys. So watch with an annual calendar must be manually set once a year while the perpetual calendar does not. The annual calendar is automatically adjusted every month for the 30 or 31 days, like I, I mentioned. So the perpetual calendar accounts for that February jump. And some of them can even do the leap years. So, you know, I'm gonna have to look this up and put it in the, the notes for you guys, but it's like decades and decades that you can go without having to reset your watch when you have a perpetual calendar. It's really, really impressive. And imagine accomplishing the watch, knowing all those, those idiosyncrasies of the calendar with tiny little gears that fit on a case inside of your, you know, the size of your wrist. 
That is just crazy. And then they started to get really out of hand. They started to look at complications like a turbion, which accounts for gravity's effect on the watch and its accuracy. That's one of the most hallowed and sought after uh, uh, complications. And the reason I bring that up is that it's one that we're going to talk about on this paddock today. I need to look this up because we need to look up in Wikipedia. We're going to toss on turbion. So I can give you guys a little background about that. I want to say it was a French king who first commissioned it. So it was developed around 1795 and patented by fresh French Swiss watchmaker, Abraham Breguet. So Breguet is a storied brand that's a competitor to Pag Philippe. It still exists today. Uh, in a turbion escapement and balance wheel are mounted in a rotating case in order to negate the effects of gravity when the timepiece, thus the escapement, is stuck in a certain position. So that means if you're holding your wrist still back in the day over the time, these watches would become more and more inaccurate as the day went on, especially since their manufacturing tolerances weren't as tight as ours are today. So this, this would actually take moving pieces inside the watch and mount it into a, a gyro that would spin it around <laughs> randomly so that it would, not necessarily randomly, but spin it around and suspend it so that it was affected by gravity in different directions. And this was really important, especially for like wartime generals back in the day, because they would need to know, okay, our watches are all accurate and synced. You know, that classic, like, oh, we're about to do a Mission Impossible thing. Sync your watches, right? Well, that's a throwback to like, if you needed to coordinate something that was going to happen on a battlefield field with cavalry and archers and things like this, then you would say, okay, let's all sync our watches. And at this time you're going to do this. And at that time I'm going to do that. And you needed all of them to be accurate. Well, if watches were plus or minus accuracy of 15 minutes or whatever, let's say for the sake of this podcast, and one person's watch was plus 15 minutes and someone else's was minus 15 minutes, that could really throw off your battle coordinations and ruin the whole plan. So having accurate wristwatches was very important back in the day for that reason. Uh, and pocket watches. So uh, that, that was one of the reasons I know it was commissioned was to help with those efforts and accuracy. And it was a huge marvel of engineering, especially for the time that it was created. I mean, that is insane that he did in 1801, he created this gy- mechanical gyro for suspending the escapement of a watch. That's just nuts. So this paddock that I've referenced today actually has one of those. So that's one of the things that's so cool about the 5303, 5303R, I should say because it has a turbion, but the other cool thing it has is a minute repeater. So here's what a minute repeater is. So imagine you need to tell time back in the day. Well, just like today, you know, you had, um, uh, blind people. Well, of course you can only look at a watch to see what time it is. I mean, that's a semi obvious statement. I should probably, <laughs> I'll point it out anyways, but yeah. So if you're blind, what do you do to tell time back in the day? Well, just go around asking people. So what some of these genius watchmakers came up with is called a minute repeater. And this to this day is one of the most expensive complications you can get. But what it does is no matter what time it is on the watch, it can measure that and then chime it out with tiny little gongs suspended inside the watch. And the cases are designed so the resonance is louder, so it escapes more of the sound. And you can actually hear these watches, even in like a room where someone's talking, you can hear it chiming out almost think like a smaller version of a grandfather clock chiming out, you know, a certain time. So grandfather clocks would do, you know, gongs for the hour. Well, minute repeaters would actually go down to the minute. That is nuts. And what they would do is they'd have two different tone gongs, right? One's deep and one's light. So dong, dong, ding, ding, right? And then what they would do is say the time is 348 is a good example. So 
the hours would be the deep one to go dong, dong, dong. Well, that's three o'clock. Now for 15 minute increments, just to speed up the function, it would, it would do the two repeating against each other. So go dong, ding, dong, ding, dong, ding. Well, since that's three times, that's three groups of 15 minutes. And now you're at 345. Then we'd finish it off with the little dings for minutes. So ding, ding, ding. So this watch would actually go dong, 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 ding, dong, ding, dong, ding, 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 ding. I hope you guys enjoyed that. That was a great rendition of the way minute repeaters work. That's pretty much what they sound like. <laughs> but anyways, so that's a really cool complication. Imagine being, and you can trigger it every you know minute as long as the watch has power and listen to what time it is. And these guys who do it as jewelry pieces made these incredible sounds. Patek Philippe is particularly renowned and proud of how resonant it is, therefore how loud it is outside of the case. And this really soothing tones that they came up with. They actually they designed the, the little metal ribbons in there that they strike with these gongs to make the noise. They actually designed them to have certain tones and things like this that are pleasant. And that's something that's all engineered into these watches. So imagine buying something like that that you have that had all that thought and expertise almost like a lost art passed on amongst the generations to be able to create something like that. Well, this watch has both a minute repeater and a tourbillon. That is nuts. That's a very complicated watch. Um, I'm really pumped about it though, because it has those functions, which are my two favorite complications. I say I'm pumped about it. I'm pumped that it exists. I'll never be able to afford this watch. I don't know what it is, what the price is, but I'm guessing it's going to be in the seven figures. Um, but I'm just, I think it's such a marvel and so cool that it exists. I loved reading about it, loved learning about it. And I love looking at the pictures. I'm going to include links in the show notes so that you guys can check out this watch and you'll see what I'm talking about now because it is absolutely stunning. But one thing that's really significant about this watch that I'm very excited about with it is that it's skeletonized and that's very rare for Paddock. They don't skeletonize many watches and they have never, to my knowledge, skeletonized a tourbillon movement. And that's a weird thing. Every other, it's such a cool movement. Like I mentioned, it's the escapement mounted in a gyro. And you see all the little finite movements and you see it ticking in the sphere in a circle. And it's so, so cool. And for some reason, Paddock has always hidden it. it, it when you buy a Paddock tourbillon, it's hundreds of thousands of dollars. You know, some of them are upwards of a million dollars. And all you get to show that is a tourbillon is on the face of the watch is just, they write the word tourbillon. <laughs> I always thought that was so bad. I never understood why they did that because every other major watchmaker makes a tourbillon, even cuts like a hole in the face of the watch to show it off because it's that beautiful. And it's kind of a flex, right? You know, that most people know what you're looking at, kind of that same subtle flex, but some people who do know, know that you just drop some serious coin on that watch. That's the big dog watch, tourbillon. So this is a, a Patek Philippe that actually is skeletonized and you can see the tourbillon and it is gorgeous. Oh, it's so pretty. It did a beautiful job. It's at the six o'clock position. Oh, it is just gorgeous. And the whole watch is skeletonized. The mounting points on it are just sculpted works of art. They picked up that same design on the side of the watch, which I think was very, very clever. And it's just a beautiful and very significant watch. But what I'm so excited about with it is that they've exposed that tourbillon, like I said. Uh, that's very significant because I think they're going to keep doing that as they build more tourbillons in the future, which probably makes those old tourbillons collectible. Although I don't think they're as cool. I'd rather have my tourbillon exposed if I could ever afford such a thing. Right? <laughs> ever take three companies public or whatever can finally get in the the Jeff Bezos club. Maybe I'll buy one. <laughs> but, uh, it's very cool. It's in their grand complications line. So I started to mention earlier, there's like Nautilus, which is their sport watches. There's another sport watch called an Aquanaut. That's very cool. Kind of looks like a grenade almost if you guys want to look it up. 
there's Calatrava, which is their basic dress watch. And then there's complications. So that's where you get into like annual calendars living there. Chronographs, that's another cool complication. A chronograph is where you can press one button on your watch and a stopwatch starts. So back in the day, if you needed to time something, you know, uh, maybe a sporting event and, you know, like the old school Olympics, right? Or, you know, how long it takes to get from point A to point B for some business function, you could time all those things on a wristwatch. And there's more complications from there. Flyback chronos you can Google and check out and things like this. Split hand chronographs are very complicated and difficult to do. Paddock has all those. Um, so uh, uh, their complicated line is oftentimes annual calendars. Uh, sometimes you have moon phase, I think, slips in there. And then you have um, some of their world calendar functions. You'll have to look up. That's a really cool watch. Maybe I'll do another podcast on world calendars because that's a, a very significant and classic Paddock. Uh, but all those watches are really, really cool. And they're in the complicated line. This is in the grand complications. And oftentimes these grand complicated watches, like this one that I'm talking about, the 5303R, uh, it's an application watch. And what that means is that you have to get to get one of these. You have to go to your authorized dealer for Paddock, tell them that you want one. They submit an application to Paddock and Paddock actually checks out what history you have of buying their watches. So even if you have the million dollars this watch might cost, let's call it $800,000 it costs, whatever it is. Even if you have it and you want to buy the watch, most people would think, oh, you want to spend $800,000 on a watch? Of course they're gonna let you do that. No, no, no. There's such a high demand for these watches and minute repeaters and tourbillons and things like that from Paddock that you actually have to apply. And uh, I'm really proud of them for that. Imagine having so much demand that you can make an $800,000 wristwatch when the Apple watch exists and does it more accurately, but an $800,000 wristwatch and you can have someone come up to you wanting to be your customer and you could turn them away because you don't think that their rep, their, their uh, collection is representative for the brand. Actually, my AD shared a story with that once where they had um, a guy who bought like eight Nautiluses, which is their sports watch. And they're very expensive watches still. I mean, they can be anywhere from $30,000 to over $100,000 of their solid gold and things like this. Um, so he uh, came in and wanted to buy an application watch. And when they sent it off, it was rejected because he did not have a representative collection. So although he had enough watches, he didn't have them of the different types of watches they make. Like he didn't have a Calatrava. He didn't have any annual calendars or chronographs and things like this. So they denied his request. He couldn't spend the money on the watch. He had to go buy other more basic paddocks in order to be approved for this great watch. This watch will be that way. And it's going to be a very significant watch. I think it's going to be one that's very... Uh, uh, very sought after. And I think it's going to be a significant watch because it's one of the first ones, if not the first. One. I think there was a special edition watch they did in Singapore that exposed the tourbillon, but this is going to be one of the first watches they ever did. And I think the first one in their regular line that exposes that tourbillon. And I think that's really, really cool. So anyways, Patek Philippe's and mechanical watches. You guys can hear me talk a lot about mechanical watches on this podcast. I love this topic. I love talking about the different brands. I love talking about why they're significant. I'll probably point back to this episode as a reference for why mechanical watches are significant and kind of be able to tell people, instead of telling that same story over and over about mechanical versus quartz and why mechanical watches were invented and why they're still sought after, I'll probably point back to this. But I'm going to do a lot of them about these watches and talking about new drops, talking about watches that I like and talking about significant watches and maybe even some reviews for you guys of the watches in my collection because it's something that I love, something I really value. And actually, it's a cool investment opportunity because if you do it right, your watch collection can appreciate. And currently, I could sell my watch collection for a decent chunk more than I bought it for. So anyways, that's the first episode of Talking Toys. Thanks for joining us and I'll see you guys soon.